Good and welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we have on Steve Albini. How are you doing? Good so far. <laughs> well, people that know music know you, and people that don't know music are going to learn. You you really believe in the artist and support the artist, and you kind of kind of what way it should be. You know, one of the things you're known for is speaking out. And I know you don't like making a big deal out of it. How you you don't take um, points on an album or anything. And and more 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 people should do it is really what it comes down to. I think that's um and people don't know he doesn't take points. He just once one one cut, one pay, he moves on. Well and, uh, um not to cut no, you off please. there, but no. like um I've always seen my role in any recording session as being more of a facilitator that is more of an engineer than uh, a producer. In my mind, the producer is the person that's making the decisions uh, during the session, like that is the creative and artistic decisions, the technical, technical decisions, mm-hmm. uh, song selection, uh, making editorial choices within the takes and that sort of stuff that the person that does that is the person I would consider the producer. And in essentially every record I've ever done, that role has been played by the band. So uh, oh. I, I don't think I, I, uh, I don't, I don't consider myself a producer, but it's not like a, it's not a semantic difference. It's just that that role that is the role of making the decisions and calling the shots on the session. I have essentially a hundred percent abdicated to the band that I'm working with at the moment. So as a, but I mean, what I'm, what I do can have obviously can have an influence on the session as an engineer, I'm presenting the, the band with options and choices that they can choose from but uh i'm i'm very much not a producer in the conventional sense where like i have an idea of how i want this song to sound and then i bring in all of my i you know i rally all my forces and i summon everything into being and then and then when we're done the song sounds the way i want it to sound that's that definitely isn't my role um and as far as the the money thing is concerned like me not getting paid a royalty that that just seems normal to me i mean it's no i agree in, with you. in any other kind of in any other line of work you get paid for your time mm-hmm. and that just seems perfectly reasonable it seems, i mean this this doesn't seem like a special or magic occupation where that kind of behavior wouldn't be appropriate you know so i i just do it the same way i would if i was a plumber you know well, I, it's, I, and yeah, I mean, you're a plumber. You walk by said house there. I plumbed that house. I'm still getting paid for it three years later. It does seem like a weird thing, <laughs> you know. Bands know your sound now and, and how you work. And you, you know, you're very, you do have a stripped down sound, a very not raw. I mean, it would have to wait. I hate to put a label on things, but you have a certain sound. It's, it's a very real sound. It's a very live sound. But when you're first starting out, when you're having bands come to you, was it, was there um, a question of that? How was that presented? Did you kind of just present yourself to them? Well, in the, in, when I first started doing it, it was all my friends, you know, like everyone was operating on a shoestring. And so what the job I would do was limited by what I could get my hands on, what equipment I could get my hands on and my very limited skill set at the time. So, uh, you know, the the first time you make you press record and then hit play and the sound comes out of the speaker it just seems fucking magical you know it seems like it, you've just accomplished a miracle and i think i was sort of in awe of that moment for a long time you know in the process of learning how to do it and then things escalated to the point where i was doing semi professional sessions in the 80s in the early 80s but I was still essentially just dealing with my friends, like the bands that I was recording were all my friends' bands. And so if, if things went to, fell to pieces, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's, you know, there's no, it's not very high pressure. The, the stakes are not high. Um, nobody's livelihood dependent on it. Um, we weren't spending much money. So if the whole thing blew up and we had to do it all again, it wasn't the end of the world. Um, I don't think that I... I don't think I started feeling my oats that is like feeling like I was in control 
in the beginning, uh, all of my sessions that I was doing were just my friends, you know, like the only people that I, the only, the people that I was around all the time were the, the people that would, that I, whose sessions I'd be doing. And, and they were all very crude. It was all limited to what we had on hand in terms of equipment and what I could, you know, what I knew how to operate and that sort of thing. And that proceed that carried on for a while. Um, it's a good way to learn because the stakes are low. You know, nobody's livelihood is on the line. Nobody's career is on the line. You're just trying to document what your friends are doing. And it's a sort of a learning experience for everybody. And the, you know, the, you're not investing a lot of money. So if the whole thing blows up and you have to do it all again, it's not the end of the world. Um, fairly quickly, it escalated to the point where I was doing sort of proper sessions in studios uh, with the same group of people, you know, my friends, just mm -hmm. my, my peer group. And uh, after, I would say, probably took me until about the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, 85, 86, somewhere in there before I felt like when I was in the studio that I had sort of full command of the capabilities of the studio. And even then, that was a very modest degree of full command. Like over the years, I've learned, obviously, what what I didn't know then. And, uh, you know, now I, I, I realize that I've done the majority of my learning since the point where I thought I knew everything. Um, but that, so that influenced me that, I mean, that got me into a frame of mind where like, you know, these, these people have come to me, they want me to help make their record. Uh, I am a sympathetic person. We're in this fancy studio. I have all these knobs in front of me. I might as well fucking use all these fucking knobs, you know? And uh, I think I was, I made a, there was a, a brief period there of a few months to maybe a year where I think I was overdoing things where I was like overcooking all the sounds, um, like making everything, trying to make every moment on the record special in some way. Um, and in so doing, you make freakish records that don't really represent the aesthetic of the people that you're working with. And um, I'm glad I got my fingers burned doing that. Like, I'm glad that, I, that, that, you know, I went through that experience of sort of overstepping my uh, position and then making bad records and recognizing it and having to turn around and apologize and redo things. And that got me essentially to where I am now in terms of frame of mind where like uh, I'm, I'm willing to try whatever anybody else wants to do, but I'm, it's rare that I will propose doing something that's sort of, you know, that's radical or um, experimental yeah, know, on somebody and, and else's record, you know. You don't like effects much, you know. Like, where was your mindset? Like, what we, did you have a career mindset where you just going to just do everything you wanted to do? Like, it, it, feels like a it never occurred to me that this was a career. Like, it never, not for a single moment while I was in Big Black and making records with my friends on the weekends and doing, you know, other freelance engineering gigs in my spare time and my band was touring when it could. And, you know, the, that whole time I had a straight job, I, like I had a nine to five job that I would go to, you know, regularly, like that's how I paid the rent. And it just never occurred to me that this would, that any of that would become a, a, a sustainable existence. You know, I mean, that, that kind of forced itself on me at a point um, in, I want to say 87, uh, my band Big Black did its final, rec uh, final recordings and its final tour. Uh, I had taken time off from work to go on tour. And uh, I came back from that tour and went back to my job and that would have been at the end of the summer. And I want to say 87. Uh, and I had started to get more and more inquiries about doing freelance engineering work. And I had built it by that time I had built a home studio at my house, which is where big black did its last bit of recording. And uh, that was becoming a sort of a viable resource for the underground music scene in, in Chicago. Like people could come to my house and make a recording and it would be reasonable quality at, for almost no money. Uh, and so that was, that seemed to be going really well to me. And 
uh, I realized that with the work that I had on the books, that is with the stuff that I had mm-hmm. um, on my calendar, that I could afford to cover my mortgage and my bills for the next three or four months. So I thought I would hazard taking a break from my job for three or four months at a minimum. And if I could make a go of it, I'd keep going. And if not, I could just go back to my job, you know? So I quit my job, but before I quit my job, the people that I was working, the the company I was working for, uh, they made several sort of very generous offers, sort of overextending themselves, trying to get me to stay. And they made it clear that if things didn't work out with me on my own as an engineer, that I could go back to this job. Right? This and is the most undangerous story ever. I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it wasn't like a it wasn't like a big risk for me. Uh, it wasn't like I'm going to shoot the moon and open my studio and pray people come and see come and book it. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was I had been gradually building up a, a freelance clientele as an engineer. Uh, largely people that I was sympathetic with and people that I knew either, you know, by name or reputation or in person. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a long ramp toward the point where I could quit my job and be an engineer full time. And so when I did that, when I quit my job and I was an engineer full time, um, I kind of expected it to blow up. Like I kind of expected to run out of work at some point and have to go back to my old job. But it just at the end of every, you know, like every time I looked, I had enough work on the calendar to keep going. And so I just carried on, you know, there was a, a brief period um, where I had done a couple of bigger records, um, bigger meaning like more mainstream right. record labels, like major label records with a lot of backing on them. And uh it was a very brief period where I had made a couple of those records and I had some money in the bank. And so I thought, well, if I'm ever going to have a shot at building a proper fancy studio, it's now, you know, like I've got money in the bank. I, my house is paid for, uh, I can, you know, I, I can live very cheaply while we build the studio and I have a kind of a cushion here. Mm -hmm. So I should just, do it, bite the bullet. I should find, find a building, build a studio and try to be like a professional, you know? And so that was probably the, that was probably the, the cutoff point, like at the point where I decided that I was going to invest all of my money, everything I'd ever earned up to that point, And likely anything I ever would earn in my life that I would just commit all of that to this one project of electrical audio like that was where everything sort of came to a point. Um, and that was sometime in 94 was when I committed to finding a building and I just kept my eye out. And eventually in December of 95, we closed on the building where electrical audio is and started construction in December of 95. And then it, it took about a year and a half to open the, there are two studios in that building and it took about a year and a half to, to build it out to the point where we could open the first studio. During that time, I went broke uh, a couple of times. Uh, I ended up selling my house. I, you know, sold all my guitars, sold all my records, all that kind of stuff. Um, But, you know, in the end I got through it and then we built the studio and then the studio has been, you know, my, my life's work ever since. And it still is. And I'll put the link for the studio if people are interested to reach out to you for work. You know, that's part of the goal here for this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we're a, the electrical audio has two studios and, I, you know, it's I, I work there all the time when there are sessions for me to do. That's where I am, you know, but there, there's also a sort of a community of freelance engineers in Chicago that use electrical as a kind of a home base. And then we have a staff of engineers as well that do sessions there in addition to me. So it, like, it's not the, it's not like people have to shell out the big bucks to work with yes. me at electrical audio. There are a lot of different ways that you can do a record there. Well, you also did previous this studio, you were starting to use other studios too, right? Or you, yeah, I have been using other studios be, just because the studio at my house was extremely modest, you know, right. 
in the beginnings, it was in the beginning, it was just like a simple eight track studio, like a table for demos and that kind of stuff, but not a lot else, you know. Um, and then suitable, yeah, suitable for very simple recording, like three piece rock band, no problem. Four piece rock band, you're kind of pushing it, you know, five or more people. And yeah, who we we're yeah, way, out of, down enough. way out of our depth there. <laughs> So uh, I was using outside studios pretty much all the time as well, like other studios in the Chicago area. And then I would travel to where other people were to do records. At I think it's kind of hard, like almost scary because every studio is different. Kind of like the Millennium Falcon where like it works differently and it sounds differently. So you're kind of coming in with a new group of people, generally a brand new studio. You've never worked with and don't know the ins and outs of, you know, the sounds and the kinks and you're just going to do it. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, part of the job as an engineer is to be able to assess the working environment and figure out what its strengths and weaknesses are like quickly, you know, and because I was having to do these very fast sessions, very low, low budget, very quick sessions. Um, I had I developed a number of like shorthand methods of figuring out what, what parts of the studio were acoustically nice for different things. Like if you just walk around the studio stomping and clapping and whistling, mm -hmm you can hear the sort of energy of the room everywhere you go. Like you can hear how much the room is contributing to the sound and you get an idea like, okay, yeah, this isn't a nice reverberant or a nice reflective area. The drums would sound good in here, or yeah, this is uh, really close and really dry and really tight. Then, you know, like if you wanted to have a very upfront sort of dry guitar sound, that would be a good spot to put the guitar amp. A lot of it was just that, like you'd walk around in the studio and try out the different rooms and see what sounded good. Often, I found myself in this position often, the main studio room for recording mm -hmm. would be of sort of limited utility just because it, it didn't have a particularly lively sound and there wasn't very good isolation. So, you, you know, it wasn't, it was sort of between stools of whether it was a, a dry isolating room or a, a loud reverberating live room so the main studio recording areas and a lot of studios were not that useful um, and I often found myself using like an adjoining office area for a live acoustic or an adjoining entryway or stairwell or something like that um, I remember I did a record in Sweden with a uh, at a, a studio called Starrec that had been there for many years it was built into a barn uh, out in the country in a small town called Vecchio. And uh, there were two barns uh, adjoining each other and there was a big metal roof covering both of them. The studio is in one and the next barn over was where all the local farmers parked their tractors to keep them out of the weather, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we were working in the springtime so the, the tractors were out. So that, that second barn room was empty all day. And in the end, we ended up recording the drums in this barn next door to the proper studio because the studio environment was too, too dry and too dead sounding. So we, we moved the drummer into this barn next door to the studio in order to make use of that large live open room. Um, and I found myself in that scenario a lot. I, I worked at a studio in um, Toronto, uh, in a suburb of Toronto called Missagua. And it was the studio that was owned by the Canadian hard rock trio Triumph. Oh, uh, yeah. Called uh, Metalworks, I think, or Metal Zone, Metalworks, something like that. Um, and the main studio area was quite small and quite dry. But just beyond the wall, just beyond the back door of that studio area was a storage area big warehouse storage area where all of triumph's touring equipment was kept all of their you know it's stage here. equipment yeah. all the lighting all their uh you know the wardrobes with all their stage outfits and stuff which let me tell you was a, a lot of fun to dig around in but more importantly it had a nice big open acoustic and so we ended up recording the drum kit in that um warehouse area rather than in the studio area just because the acoustics were more flattering in that warehouse area now, I assume you took that design, all of your, almost like guerrilla training is what this has all been for you, now to your own studio. Yeah. How much of that did you incorporate in the build? Because you had a shell, you could just build what you wanted, and you knew what you wanted, what you didn't want from, you know, this 
boots on the ground, you know, working <laughs> malleable. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the lessons that I learned by having to sort of make do in other studios informed all the, the design choices at electrical, like things like the sight lines, being able to see from one room to to the other. Um and then just the general character of the studio, like having some reflected energy in the rooms rather than having the rooms be completely dead or dry. Like we have rooms that are dead and dry, but they're dead and dry intentionally. And it's not just a, um, it's not, was not just a, a way of sort of covering up a bad design of a room. And then the other rooms are more lively and more reflective and those actually give you a, a nice ambient character that you can make use of in the in the recording. Um, those are things that I that were plans going in, going you know when when we drew it out on on a piece of paper, it was like okay, well this room is going to be super dead. This one's going to be small and bright. This one's going to be big and boomy, and uh, and it w- just worked out that way. It worked out quite nicely based on what my expectations were, having been in a bunch of other studios. You have a you have a great drum sound. It's a very full live sound. Do you have that like perfected in a way, like we kind of know we can come in because some people are known as you know to kind of be there like meticulously days getting the drums right. And some people are just yeah you know what they want. They can kind of pop them in an hour or two. Uh, I mean, a lot of it a lot of it depends on the the band and the drummer. Like if the drummer can articulate to me what he's what his ideal drum sound is, you know, like uh oh yeah there's this you know I'm, I'm really crazy about the drums on this one record and then uh you know if i if i know that record and the sound of that record then i have a direction mm-hmm. to to go as far as the engineering choices are concerned um i have i, I mean I, I do pride myself on being efficient in the studio but a lot of that has to do with just time on task like I've just done it a shit million times. Right. And so I'm not surprised by things or I'm not wondering what I'm supposed to do in certain situations. You know, um, I do have a kind of a regular routine for when I get started with a drum kit. Like I talk to the drummer and ask them what kind of sounds they like and don't like. I have them play around on the drum kit and point out any things that they're not happy with or any things that they want to change. Uh, and we try to get the drums acoustically sounding too sweet. Like before, before I worry about the microphones, the drummer needs to be stoked about the way his drum kit sounds just acoustically. In some cases that it can be something very simple, like, Oh, you're playing these very thick, very dead, very used heads. Let's put more lively, brand new drum heads on your drums. And that wakes the whole drum kit up and that solves all the problems. Like they can be something as simple as that, or, um, you know, uh, I have a bass drum, I, the the sound man cut a hole in my bass drum, but normally I play with the whole the full front head, um, but I haven't changed the head out since the sound man cut a hole in it. So yeah, okay, well we'll just put a new head on there and it should be fine. Or um, or just th- so, through sort of received wisdom, things like stuffing the bass drum full of things to deaden the sound of the bass drum can be useful in an onstage setting when you're trying to minimize feedback. Right. But if what you're going for is a booming, open, resonant bass drum sound, well, then you don't want to have a bunch of fucking blankets in it, you know? Uh, and th- those kinds of things. It's just a matter of, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, a learning process on my part. Like I have to talk to the drummer and find out what they want to do, what they want their drums to sound like. And then make whatever material changes you need to in the drums to get the drums sounding the way they're supposed to. Often the drummer will have been working on his drum sound his whole life and he will be very, very finely tuned to what his drums are supposed to sound like. And he will be ecstatic with his drums as they are. And that's my, that's when things are the easiest for me, because then I don't have to, I really don't have to do that much work. Because to me, drums make or break an album. So I always, can really appreciate somebody gets a good drum sound because you know you can that's a good song but that drum just kills me it's like flap flap it's just not you know it's painful sometimes and you know it's, it's yeah it's weird when when i hear other people's recordings um i always assume that the sound that i'm hearing is a conscious decision so even if it's something that i hear that is not flattering in my mind it doesn't 
doesn't sound like it's uh, flattering the music for whatever reason. I always assume that there was a reason for it, that there was a conscious decision for that. And I try not to be critical of other people's recordings, just because when, when I hear other people's recordings, off, as often as not, there's something that kind of puzzles me. Like, I don't know why that sounds like that. And I, I don't know what I would do to manifest such a sound. You know, like if someone said, you know, this is what we want it to sound like and played me that as an example. In some cases, I would just scratch my head because I, I wouldn't know how they did it, you know? Um, and so I, what I've done is I've started, you know, by, because most of the records that I do, I start at the beginning and I go all the way through to the end. Mm -hmm. uh, like I start with the basic tracking and go through all the overdubbing and mix everything. Um, there's a kind of a through line of continuity where at the beginning of the session, you kind of get a read from everybody about what they want it to sound like. And over the course of the session, you're sort of incrementally getting all of the sounds dialed in. And, and then by the end of the session, everybody's everything is sounding precisely the way they've always wanted it to. Uh, and then when it comes to the mixing stage, you have this kind of sense memory, like, oh, everybody got turned on when I opened this microphone. So I'm going to start, I'm going to lead with that on this next song or whatever. So you have this, there's a continuity from the beginning of the session until the end of the session that keeps you in the frame of mind of, of sort of being present for the decisions that everyone is making in real time. I, and that I wanted, I'm just saying, I'm distinguishing that from me having an aesthetic about what I want things to sound like and then tapping them into place until they fit this aesthetic versus me over the course of time, over the course of a session, learning what the band's aesthetic is and gradually fitting everything in to the point where they're happy with the way everything sounds. I think the two things most known for me, I would say of you would be, yeah, you, you, you honor the band's sound the most. And I just heard this from a friend of yours, a, a, a lead singer from a Naked Ray Gun. You just did some recording of his. I was talking to you the other day. He likes the effects on the voice and he likes it more like the sounds and you don't. <laughs> and that is something you just don't like. I'm saying that's one of your things where you just, just, it's never been your thing. Well, it's, it's not that I, I'm, anything can work. And he in was good too. Don't get me wrong. He was, he loves you. I'm just, he was just you talking know, anything, about it. anything can sound good or bad given the context. Like mm -hmm. if you're listening to a very naturalistic recording and then there's one element that's alien and spacey and weird and very processed that can either distract you and draw, take you out of this sort of sense of uh, uh, unity that you were getting or this sort of continuity that you were getting of the, of the sound. It can remove you from that. And that can be bad or it can highlight this one sound as being this special right. alien weird sound and sort of center your attention on it. So um, I'm, I can't, in, in a sort of blanket way, say that, you know, abstracting sounds and using effects and things like that, that that's bad or good. What I can say is that if you start from a position of abstraction, that is, if all of your decisions are predicated on things being processed and affected and weird and, and spacey and alien and non-realistic, that if that is your starting point, then it's very, e very difficult to get back to no, a situation to where it sounds naturalistic and real. You know, mm -hmm. if you start from a position of naturalism or realism, if you start by trying to make things represent the experience of them in, in the world, then it's relatively easy to abstract them from there. And sometimes it happens accidentally or incidentally, you know, just like, I mean, a, a good example would be if someone is doing a take on, and they like lean into the microphone and get really loud for a bar in a take where you don't expect it. You can distort the vocal unintentionally there in that spot. And there are times where when that happens, that's the best part. And so if you leave it in, it's a technically it's an engineering error, but you would leave that in because it added a nice emphasis or something. And then there are other times where people say, well, 
I like it when my voice is really distorted. I like the sound of my voice distorted as a sound, like a like a guitar player would like their guitar distorted, you know, as a sound. And so then you have a starting point, like okay, well, let's set it up so that you can hear various kinds of distortion, and you can choose what you like, and then we can proceed from there with you, you know, making a conscious decision for this sound, this abstraction, rather than it being some external thing that I apply to amuse myself in the mixing room, you know? I thought it was pretty neat. When he mentioned just that's pretty cool. Um, and I asked, since you guys had known each other early on, he actually played briefly in big black, right? Um, yeah. What it was like the difference, the, the two younger use doing music, right? To like, and then the age getting together with coming back together and doing music again with the knowledge, like, what the difference was like, you know what I mean? Well, in my experience, the, like the, the things that you recognize as the core personality elements of somebody, you know, provided you're talking to somebody who's sentient, you know, somebody who's an adult of to right. a degree, like you can come back in 20 years and that part of them is still there. You know, like the things that you liked about somebody when he was a teenager, the thing, those things that made him seem like a good friend and that made him seem like a smart person and perceptive when you come back to him and he's in, in his maturity, those, those things are still there. You know, Um, there was a, a a documentary film that was made maybe 10, 15 years ago about the Chicago punk scene called you weren't there. Mm -hmm. And it had a bunch of interview footage of people, you know, 20 odd, 25 years later um, reminiscing and talking about their frame of mind when they were young and what the punk scene was like when they were teenagers or whatever. And these are all people that were, that I knew intimately. Like these are all people that I would spend all my, that I spent all my time with. They, these are the people that helped form me as a person and the people that I played in bands with and people whose bands I went to go see. And, you know, I went to the parties at their house. I walked them home drunk, you know, like these are like people that I knew intimately. Right. And those people, when they were young people, had a spark that uh, invigorated me and that that uh, was contagious and made me want to get involved in music and made me want to do all of these things as well, right? And then those same people being interviewed in their 40s and 50s, talking about what inspired them then, it's the same people, you know? Like if somebody had a petty beef, that petty beef is still there. If somebody, you know, if somebody was like, funny, you know, yeah. If there was like, if there was like some jealousy or, or some uh, insult Mm -hmm. that somebody felt back then, they brought it with them. It's still, that's still there. It's still, it's baked into their personality, you know? And it was, it was really great seeing, all of these people that were so inspirational to me when I was a young person, like they seemed so wise and they seemed so smart and energetic and so insightful. And then seeing them as adults and seeing and realizing, yeah, they actually, they were smart and energetic and insightful and creative. There, there is something amazing about these people. And I, that's what I recognized when I first encountered them was I recognized the amazing part. Now there's a mundane sort of everyday part of of everybody as well. And uh, the mundane and and everyday part of everybody is, you know, that's the part that pays the bills. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm no, no shade on anybody for getting boring as they get old and start to have more responsibilities in their lives. But I thought it was amazing that the same people had, that I had the same emotional reaction, the same, like the same intellectual sort of communion with these people, some of whom I hadn't spoken to in 20, 25 years, but there they were, same old guy, exactly the same as I remembered, you know, that was a pretty great experience for me. I'm, I'm not a nostalgic person by nature. Like I don't think about the past very often. Um, I appreciate that going through the past is how I got to where I am now. And that those experiences shaped my mindset and formed me as a person. Um, But I don't dwell on it. I don't think, I don't think there's any value in looking back 
rather than and than being active in the moment, right? So uh, it was an it was a brief it was a brief trip in that sort of direction for me to experience all of these old emotions and all you know all these reactions to to these people. It was it was very nice, and um, a lot of those same people just stayed smart and inspirational their whole lives. Uh, so I, I don't think that people really change that much. You know, little aspects of their behavior can change or um, elements of their frame of mind, like their, their orientation on certain things can change. But the, the tools with which they are building their personality, you know, the tools and materials are the same. You know, it's going to be the same person to an extent. Well, because I know, like, Allison, sometimes being a producer, and it's, I could be wrong, but just you, you also have to play, depending on who the producer is, what you're doing is not a psychologist, but you do have to read the room. You do have to have some skills to talk to people, you know, unless. Yeah. Or they know know who they're going into. They know who you are. Some producers, they know who you are, and that's it. And some producers go to all situations and they have to fill out the room and they go chameleon. It's, it's, It's different for everybody. Yeah, I, I have to say, I don't have the best bedside manner. Like, I don't do a lot of. Uh, I'm I'm not. Boys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I don't do a lot of like sort of encouraging or coaching or you know like pep talks that kind of thing. Like, I'm not. There are there are other people that I've seen who can who do that and who do it in a way where it doesn't seem phony and it doesn't seem like they're glad handing they genuinely sort of join the band for the duration of the right. session. And they like my friend, Ian Burgess, who was an, you know, a, a me- great mentor of mine and a, and a real uh, inspiration to me. Like he was very much like that. Like when he was in the studio with the band, he was the biggest fan of that band. And he was so into what they were doing and he wanted, you know, like he was, he had essentially joined the band for the duration of the session and, you know, he was the perfect audience for their music. He was the perfect collaborator within the band. Like he would, you know, I bounce ideas off of them and they would bounce ideas off of him. And uh, his bedside manner put everybody at ease and made everybody feel like he had the session in his hands. He could be blind drunk and barely able to find his shoes and still be able to pull everything off and make everybody feel like they were the most important person in the room, you know? Like, I, I just don't have that in me. I, I don't have whatever the, the sociability gene or the gene that, that is sort of of sort of like performative coaching and encouraging. Um, I just I'm, I'm not good at that. Do you think it affects sometimes like because the, the cheerleading and being there can sometimes push an artist out. And I know, let's face it, a lot of artists are, are insecure, especially singing in the studio. Yes. It's, it's a different thing there. They're not the rock starts different when, you, when you're singing dry in a studio <laughs> yeah i think uh, i think if anything what i do is i make it clear that people are in control of their session like if they want the you know if they if they want a certain mood set like if they want the lights dimmed or if they want you know if they want their special drink singing tea or whatever they they get all of those things they can have anything that they want they i want i make it clear that people can call their shots in the studio like if they want to empty the room so that there's nobody in there but them doing their vocals, that's fine with me. I'm happy to do that. Well, you it's know? your version of being a cheerleader. You're setting up them for success on their way. It's it's basically like giving people license to do things the way they want to. I what I'm bad at is like sort of coaching and picking takes and and you know, there's a, the, the legend of various producers who make people do hundreds of takes of a vocal until the person is just like a withered husk and there's nothing left, you know, but then, you know, that 109th take, that's the one that made the record, you know, like, I, I, I just don't have that in me. I just can't do it. You know, like, it, How many do you do? How many takes do you try to use a couple? I mean, I just, I don't really heard if, it. If, just, you, if you start at the beginning and get all the way through, and if it sounds good to you, then I'm fine with it. You know, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not that picky. Well, I know. I just it, heard somebody is a, is a producer. I'm sorry. He, he, he does destructive recording. I can't think who it is now. Somebody we would all know. He does one track and then if they want to do it again, he records it over. He wipes it out. They go, well, how did you keep it? That could have been the best one. Nope. 
going to do it again. And then we get the best one. We're done. One track recording. That's pretty. Yeah, I don't have a I don't have a philosophy about that. Like in a practical, from a practical standpoint, when you're doing things on an analog session, you have limited tape tracks to work with, so you don't keep redundant material. Like you don't keep things that you're not using. Um, so, but if someone says, "Yeah, that could have been the one. Keep that, and I'll try another one." You know, I'm happy to keep that and try another one. But at some point, there'll be a few for them to, to choose from and then they have to make an editorial decision and we move on from there um i'm i don't have a, a single method for, for for doing it but mm -hmm. i i do try to make it clear that whoever is whoever i'm recording at the moment that they're in charge that they get to t they get to have things done their way okay i have a couple questions uh well and your microphones but some of the bands you did and in, in, in you recorded but it never never came out with Fugazi mm -hmm. album, can you share like what happened? Why didn't why you, they didn't stick with you? I mean, I would uh, love to hear that. Yeah, so it's a there is actually a, there's a podcast called Fugazi to Fugazi. No, no, it's called Alpha Alphabetic Fugazi. I think it is, mm -hmm. but it's they went from A to Z um, through all of their songs uh, and interviewed. It's a it's an interesting podcast where they would like that's awesome play the song of a song of interest and interview somebody about the song, their relationship to the song, what they did working on that song, various members of the band, various people Concept. close to the band, whatever. And they interviewed me about this session that I did with Fugazi. And um, the way it worked out was they were fixing to record this, an album that they became in on the kill taker. They had some of the songs written and arranged and ready to go. And they were still working on another batch of songs. Um, and they called me and said, yeah, we've known you for a while. We've never worked with you. Why don't we do a session where we record some demos for this record and see how it goes? And I was like, that's a great idea. You should totally fucking do that. <laughs> so they carried on working and then came out to record. And in the interim, they had sort of finished arranging the rest of the album. So in our initial conversations, it was going to be, let's record a few songs or some, a few demos anyway, and see how it goes. But by the time they got to my house mm -hmm. to do recording, this is when I was still recording at the studio in my house, it, it was like, well, we have the whole album ready, let's knock it out. And <clears throat> we got along very well and we were enjoying the sessions and things were sounding good on initial listen. So we just pressed on and then they finished recording the album and we had another day or two. So, we just carried on and we mixed it. And then by the time they were finished, I thought we'd done an album, you know, but when they listened to it on reflection back home, they were not happy with the, the sound quality. They were not happy with the way it sounded. Um, and that's perfectly understandable. You know, they had done all of, essentially all of their recording had been done with very familiar people in very familiar environments. Right. Um, and this was the first time they'd like gone someplace else to do a session with somebody that they'd never worked with before. Right. <clears throat> and so there's any number of things that in, in play there, whatever, some, some days you eat the bear, some days the bear eats you. And it just didn't come out that great. Like, uh, and the, they, so essentially they redid the whole album in their sort of original working method, like at inner ear, with Don or whatever. Yeah. And that ended up being, it ended up being a great record, you know? No, oh, too gazzy, so. <laughs> and my, whatever disappointment I felt at not having done a good enough job, like not having cut the mustard with Fugazi, whatever disappointment I felt about that, it's kind of offset by the fact that we remained very good friends. We've done, you know, touring and a bunch of other bullshit together, like, we've remained good friends and I'm proud of my friendship and associate association with them. It doesn't really matter that I never did an album with them, you know? Well, it doesn't even reflect upon me. I don't think as much as sometimes there's a certain sound the band wants, but I, I imagine that happens a lot. And the kind of ties in well with a lot of bands, they hear it, they love it when they're excited, but when they go back and they get the other people in their ears, not Fugazi, but anybody, and they're away from you in a situation, and then they got the doubts and everything kind of comes in. I yeah, it's, it's normal kind of to that. second guess yourself. 
like when you finish a record and you listen to it, it's normal to second guess your decisions along the way and wonder if, man, maybe I should have done that one over. Or, you know, the mix on that one isn't quite right. You know, like that's total. all of that's totally normal. Um, in some cases, there are practical demands that's like, well, yeah, we have, have to turn the master in by Friday, so we're not going to be able to redo that or we're just going to cut that song or whatever. Um, and then in some cases, people have, have the luxury of time and the budget to redo things. And so they redo them. You know, I, there's a, I did a record with a band called McCluskey. I did the, um, the first session that I did with them was an album that came out. Everything went great. They did some touring, wrote a bunch of new songs, came over to record another album. But within the band, there had been sort of serious tensions developing and the band kind of broke up during the recording of that record so we did get all the way through it but then they scrapped it and the the band sort of reorganized with the new drummer and came back six months later and did the whole thing again you know and to great effect you know like right. if they had just put out that record you know out of some feeling of obligation they wouldn't have been happy with it you know, it wouldn't have been the experience of doing it was miserable for them, apparently. I mean, they've kept a brave face, but apparently they hated the whole social interact, yeah. you know, like the interpersonal aspect of it was not great. And I'm glad that they ditched it and came back and did it again. You know, I'm glad that Fugazi ditched the session that we did and went off and made an on kill, in on kill, kill taker on their own. I mean, that record came out great, you know? Yeah. Well, I imagine, yeah, with the industry up and down, up and down. One of the things, the other question I have is, so at one point, obviously you did Nirvana, but Nirvana liked you because they liked the, the Breeders uh, and they liked the um, awesome Pixie album that you did, which is has my daughter, one of my daughter's favorite songs on that she plays. Um, but so they had a sound they wanted and they came in and you did your magic and they loved it. But same thing, even as big as they are, when they went out, you know, changes in the sound and doubting and everything else so move forward from that though i mean that's the story you've talked about you've come forward though you've gone back and you've done some mixes and you've been you've done some more work on their stuff that how did you end up back with them if the powers that be kind of wanted to make it more pop sensibilities and how'd you get back in the picture again um well i think well there was a sort of an anniversary edition of in utero being prepared in 2013 that was like the 20th anniversary edition of the record and they they wanted to make it into a very special package um the most special thing about it to me is that the record label allowed them to do a very careful comprehensive all analog master from the original master tapes direct into metal and that version of the record that version of the vinyl record uh the double 12 inch 45 which was cut from the original master tapes direct into metal full dmm processing yada yada that is that's as good as you can make a phonograph record like there's just you can't do anything more to ensure quality in manufacture to incur in you know, to, to get a better transcription, like a better transfer at the mastering stage. Like they did everything right, you know? And I think that was totally worthwhile. In addition to that, they wanted to generate some additional material so that people who were already intimate with this record could have another experience with it. And so they did a series of remixes from the original session where various conscious decisions were made that made a different version of each of the songs. Like, all right, this song was originally recorded with two guitars, but one of the guitars was a little out of tune, so we didn't use it. What does it sound like if we go ahead and stick it on there? You know, like, or yeah. this song was recorded with a string, a cello part all the way through it but it seemed kind of cluttered. So let's get the cello out of there so we can just hear the three-piece band for a while 
and then have the cello show up as like a as a little decoration here and there rather than all the way through it that kind of thing like they made conscious decisions on each song that would make a different version make a version that presented a different aspect of the music <clears throat> and that came about because chris novoselic had bought a surround sound version of surround sound reissue of a doors album an album that he was intimately familiar with since he was a teenager and when he was listening to the surround sound version he heard elements in the original recording that he oh completely overlooked like things that he'd never noticed before and he he liked having that experience of like I'm listening to a familiar song. Falling in love again. But I'm having a new experience with it because it's revealing something different to me. Yeah. So that was the impetus toward doing a new mix of the record in 2013. It wasn't like, okay, let's correct the 1993 version. No, I didn't think that at all. I just thought it was kind of cool they brought you back in it. And I didn't know the process of it. Who would the ultimate say on it? They had me, they had me work on it because I worked on the original sessions and I would be most familiar with it. Right, but that doesn't always make sense in the record industry. That <laughs> they make decisions. Who, who, who was making the decisions on that, the final decisions on, on your mixes? Was it Dave and Chris? And Yeah, it was the, the band. Like the, I mean, Pat. I think there were several things at play there. Like the, that record, when they made that record in 1993, they were younger people working with older people in positions of authority in the record business. Mm -hmm. 20 years later, they are now the senior partners in that relationship. You know, they have proved their worth and that record had stood the test of time. So they were able to say, no, actually this is the way we want to do it. And then that's the way it got done. Good. So uh, yeah, they, they, it was the surviving members uh, Chris and Dave and <clears throat> and Pat. Pat was there from the beginning of the mixing session, and then he and Dave had to split. So Chris Novoselic and I carried on doing the mixing, and we would send them reference material um, by uploading mix copies and stuff like that for them to listen to. So uh, so they stayed involved the whole time, but they were only physically there for the first couple of days. That's kind of cool they were involved and you were back in it. It really honors it, the project and it kind of keeps it true uh, to what it was. Is- I also think, I, I've, you know, we had a good working relationship. We, we got along well. You know, I like them. They like me. We respected each other. We've remained friends. You know, I think all of it is, it was just like the easiest solution for it, you know. The last thing I want to talk about is the effect and the lasting effect and you're not into looking back big black i mean that's a quite a big band for some people you know a very cool band cult band i don't know the best way to put it but you know everyone has a good big black the song they love or the album or you know yeah i mean it was that was sort of me getting my sea legs as a musician like learning how to play guitar learning how to write songs learning how to make records learning how to interact with the rest of the world as a musician, like, you know, how to, how to book shows, how to play a concert, how to get along with other bands, how to, you know, like. It was a short process, all right, the band. It was very short. The the process, the length of the band's life was like five or six years. It was short. It was like the Beatles was really short. I had a couple, everything was packed into a couple of years. Um, The first demo recordings would have been in like 81, 1981, 82. And then it was all over by 1987. So yeah, five, six years. Put a lot in there though. (laughs) That, that was, you know, that's a long enough time for you to learn how to, to do everything basically. Like I went from knowing nothing, like literally nothing about recording or music or playing in a band. Like I had played in bands, goof off bands when I was in high school but we, you know, we'd only ever done a few informal shows. We'd never done any touring or any proper shows, really. Um, and then insinuating myself into the music scene to, in Chicago to the extent where, I, like, my band was playing every couple of weeks. And we were rehearsing all the time. And we were hanging out with all these other musicians. And I was seeing shows every night of the week. And um, I was participating in the scene on a number of levels like I was doing artwork for other bands I was doing posters and flyers for shows and clubs and 
I was promoting shows as a, as a promoter and um, I briefly ran a record label and I was writing for fanzines and doing like I was doing all of this stuff because all of it seemed like it was part of one big continuum. You know, it didn't seem, it didn't seem like you needed to be a specialist at the time. It seemed like everybody was going to be doing everything from then mm -hmm. on. And that's, you know, that's part of what formed my personality. And it makes me feel like, like I'm not, I'm not, if something comes up, a new project comes up that I have to try something I've never done before. I'm not that intimidated by it. I feel like you can learn how to, you can teach yourself how to do whatever it is and just do it. You know, you don't need professionals. Uh, and I've, I've sort of carried on that way through my whole life. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for giving some time and talking tonight and sharing some of these stories. I want to tell everybody to check out your website. The link will be below. Check you out if they want to do some recording. Any last advice you give new people that are recording from home or anything, any little... Like I, an older version of you would tell a younger version of you, you know, about music. Uh, I th well, the younger version of me wouldn't have listened, so it doesn't matter. But the 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 thing that's I think is really cool now about people working on stuff at home is that like you can get reasonably good results pretty simply now. You know, like when I when I in the seventies and eighties when I first started playing in bands, like you couldn't buy a studio quality microphone at a guitar store. You right. know, you would have to, you'd have to have some special connection somewhere and do and order something from a catalog or whatever, and spend, a, a, you know, your life savings to get a reasonable quality studio microphone. And now they sell microphones at guitar center that are perfectly suitable, perfectly useful for studio recordings. Right. Um, in the 70s and 80s, when I started playing in bands, the the simplest recording setup you could get would be a some kind of a big, cumbersome fucking reel-to-reel four-track. And you'd need a mixer and a bunch of cables and a bunch of crazy shit to get it to get it going. <clears throat> so it was super cumbersome. Like you no one recorded themselves. It was just way too much work, right? But now, like there's a, you can get an interface and a couple of microphones and plug them into your computer. And anybody with a laptop has some kind of recording medium, which I think is amazing. You know, I think that's an incredible development. And it means that everybody now gets a chance to experience that sort of spooky magic of recording something and then hearing it played back, you know. Um, so I think that's great. I'm super into that as a democratizing element to the way music has evolved. I think that's great. My advice would be um, to take what you're doing seriously. Like a lot of people get in a frame of mind where like the band will play the song and they'll listen to it and there'll be something that's unsatisfying about it. So they'll immediately start manipulating it or start overdubbing on it or start distorting it or start putting effects on it or trying to do things to it after it's been recorded. And my advice would be to leave things alone a little bit more, like appreciate, like if your band is kind of sloppy in certain elements, appreciate that as a stylistic element, or if it bothers you, I guess you could practice and work on it to try to iron it out. But the, the thing where everybody is sort of nudging their material toward a, a single sort of professional quality, I think kind of irons out a lot of the personality of bands. Like, you know, there's a three piece band, but when you hear their recordings, there's like nine layers of guitar and 16 right. layers of vocal. And, and you, if I really wanted to hear that three piece band, I, I wouldn't be able to, like, you can't even hear what, what the band is like through their recording. And some of that comes from a defensive mindset, like, <clears throat> well, just one of these can't be enough. Let's just, let's put a bunch on there. Let's overwhelm it, you know, and that'll make it special somehow. But the problem is that when you make everything special, then you can't tell when the special part happens. And my, my advice would be to keep things as simple and as Spartan as you can, at least in the beginning, so that you can hear what you actually sound like, so that you can appreciate, you know, it's like, 
just have an espresso, you know, you don't need a caramel macchiato with whipped cream and cinnamon. These are great words. This is what I heard when I went to recording school. My teacher said the same thing. First day, he said to us, keep it simple. You can always build from there. You can't go back and change crazy stuff. Start at the beginning slowly. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of complexity to an espresso. Like an espresso is not a simple thing. But if you've buried it in caramel and whipped cream and soy milk, like it's going to be more difficult for you to tell what you're working with as a base, as a basic espresso. That's good advice. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show. It's been a well, Thanks for having me. Thank you.